What is up, Bitcoiners? It's your boy CK, and I am super excited to introduce you to this episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. This week, I sit down with Peter McCormick and Andy Edstrom to talk about their fantastic article that they published on Bitcoin Magazine a couple weeks ago. The article is titled Winning Hearts and Minds for Bitcoin, and it really talks about how to discuss Bitcoin with Bitcoin skeptics. It's really easy as a woke Bitcoiner to be very, very impatient with skeptics, people who recycle FUD, people who just don't understand, people who are in a fiat mindset, people who have not reoriented to Bitcoin. But Andy and Peter, as Bitcoin educators, as Bitcoin evangelists, they see a better way. They see a way where Bitcoiners can be open-minded. Bitcoiners can hold the hands of the institutions and the masses that are going to be onboarding into Bitcoin, no matter what we do, and help them make that process easier, help them ease them into Bitcoin, help them understand. I know it's not going to be easy, but they set aside a really, really great framework in order to think about how to position your arguments for why Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is important. Before we get into this podcast, let's talk about our sponsor. It is Block Stacks, Stacks 2.0 blockchain. Stacks has been building decentralized technology on top of Bitcoin for a very long time. And they have just recently launched the Stacks 2.0 blockchain, the Stacks 2 blockchain, which uses POX and staking in order to bring Bitcoin onto their platform and to use Bitcoin as the native monetary token on that platform. They want to bring DeFi, they want to bring dApps to Bitcoin. They want to enable the scaling that can't happen on the base layer to happen on the Stacks 2.0 chain. So go check out stacks2.com. That's S-T-A-C-K-2.com to learn more, especially if you're a developer. They have a lot of amazing resources there. All right, guys, without further ado, let's jump right into this fantastic conversation with Peter McCormick and Andy Edstrom. Bitcoiners, what is up? I am here with two fantastic members of the Bitcoin community, two creators, two people who are constantly trying to better understanding for themselves as well as all Bitcoiners. I am here with Peter McCormick and Andy Edstrom. Welcome to Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. Great to be with you, you, CK. Yeah, good to see you, man. So, I've you know, obviously been following both of you guys for a long time, and I was really thrilled to receive an op-ed co-authored by both of you titled Winning Hearts and Minds for Bitcoin Magazine. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic article. And you guys touch on a lot of things that are going to be really important in this upcoming bull run and whatever happens in the next few years with Bitcoin and in trying to educate people who don't know about Bitcoin and who don't understand it already about it. Well, I guess let's just kind of like kick into it. I know that, you know, Andy, you you are someone who, you know, feels really strongly about this kind of messaging and how to, you know, discuss Bitcoin with newbies. You wrote the book Why Buy Bitcoin behind you. Why don't you kick us off? Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, CK. You know, just real quick, the genesis of this article was I only read the book The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt like a couple months ago. And I was kicking around some ideas in my head and how it might apply to Bitcoin. And then Peter jumped the gun on me. He was having his annual conversation with Matt O'Dell and he mentioned it. Peter mentioned it and he was already thinking about it evidently. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I better get this out. better put this pen to paper. 
But like you, CK, you know, this is, I see this cycle as really crucial. I mean, quote unquote cycle, you know, could we go straight to the moon? Yeah. You know, hyper Bitcoinization, maybe. But regardless, if 2021 is going to shape up the way we think it might shake up, shape up, then it's more important, I think, than ever to frame the narratives to win as many hearts and minds, you know, in favor of Bitcoin as we possibly can. And I am more guilty than anyone of just trying to, you know, brute force logic, you know, basically convince people of this is the way, you know, this is how it is examined from first principles. And that works with some portion of the population, but let's be honest, it probably doesn't work with most people. And so I think applying this framework, you know, all of us maybe could have more success with winning people over with respect to Bitcoin really being good for the world broadly speaking, rather than just being a get rich scheme, you know, for us Bitcoiners who managed to find it, you know, in time to see number go up. So maybe I'll hand it over to to Peter from there. Well, firstly, Andy won't appreciate me saying this, but co-authoring is a very liberal way of attributing some of the success of this article to me, because this was primarily Andrew's work. At the same time, he did recognize I'd been thinking about the same things. I have read The Righteous Mind. And that book stuck with me quite a bit, and it's affecting a lot of my thinking about a lot of things. But Andy did the majority of the legwork. I was really grateful to contribute. So what's really interesting with The the Righteous Mind is that, uh, and the background for me into this was, uh, obviously, you know, Christian, I have this other podcast, Defiance. I was doing the series Chaos, just about the chaotic political climate in the U.S., and originally it was called The Accidental Dictator, and it was a very anti-Trump piece. But I just realized... I didn't really want to do that. It felt like the wrong approach. It it would trigger anyone who's a Republican and uh, and anyone who's a Democrat would be fully supportive of it. And it, but it wouldn't achieve anything. You're not going to tell anything new. So about two weeks before we were meant to launch the first episode, after spending two months on it, I phoned up my brother who was helping me with it, and I said, "Look, we've got to rethink this. I think the real story is try and understand, try and understand where these differences come from, why they exist, where where are we going with this, and." During that process, I stumbled across the the hype book, The Righteous Mind, and I read it and I read about these moral frameworks and it just, suddenly everything just became clear. It just became very clear why people are arguing at cross purposes. You know, yeah. It just comes from these moral foundations, whether you're a conservative or, or you're uh, a liberal. And actually, they're, they're quite, you know, whilst you can go through the full set of moral foundations, what I, I've, what I found is a couple of things really stand out from a, a liberal point of view the thing that really stands out is is the moral foundation of care harm and that seems to dominate the majority of the decisions or opinions that people hold who are uh, liberal it's hence why they seem to care more about for example right now a very good lens for this is with the update of the webs the white house website for pronouns right so if you're a liberal you will support the idea of 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 anyone being able to select their pronouns and just say this is not an issue because I come from care harm. I care about people being able to identify exactly how they choose. Whereas conservatives come from very much traditional organized uh, structures. Therefore, this breaks the traditional the structure. So you'll have Ben Shapiro claim this is kind of like the end of humanity, whereas you'll have liberals saying this is a good thing. But what came out of this is I started to realize that you can apply this lens to, to almost anything, Christian. And I think that's where Andy, what Andy noticed when I was talking to Matt. 
So I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit more about specifically the righteous mind. You mentioned one of the six primary foundations that kind of drive human action, according to the book. Do we want to kind of break down like the the thesis behind it and these these six tenets? Yeah, I think we'd go that direction. Maybe I'll just interject, you know, a little bit of basics about the theory. And, you know, first of all, <laughs> let's remember this is a psychological theory Yes, it's built upon the you know empirical work and the studies of numerous psychologists over decades. Nevertheless, you know take it with a grain of salt, and that's fine. And the model that's invoked by Jonathan Haidt and the other guys that, that did this research is that of the elephant and the rider. And the concept is the elephant is really what drives the bus cognitively. So we have you know along these six axes, we have base structures probably or thought patterns in our brain that we think originated because they were adaptive evolutionarily primarily because of teamwork you know this gets to like the sailor stuff that i think michael sailor talked about perhaps on peter's podcast and also on the sailor series as well with freedlove and it's this notion that like humans win because we can form groups and have teamwork and so anything that contributes to that function evolutionarily probably made us succeed and, you know, and basically survive more effectively. And so the, uh, the idea is along these six basic parameters, the elephant moves in the right direction and the rider, the elephant is the intuitive mind. And then the rider is like the high level cognitive, you know, prefrontal cortex mind, the logical mind and homo economicus, you know, this totally false model that we were, some of us were taught, you know, in college, about the rational human is just, it's kind of mostly wrong, right? Rather than the rationality rider, you know, the rational rider driving the elephant, really the elephant, which is the intuitive mind, starts to move in a direction. And then the rider might be able to change the direction of the elephant, but it's really hard. And usually the rider just creates logical justifications for the way that the elephant is moving is moving already. So that's kind of the, you know, the the framework. But Maybe I'll pass it to Pete, you know, if he has anything to add or if he wants to focus on one of these six uh, foundations or another. Well, before that, just to add to that, what you can then realize is when you see people starting to argue, especially especially about political issues, you start to see this play out because what people do is they essentially shoot from the hip and post-rationalize. So, for example, Trump, obviously very divisive. If Trump was to come out and say, you know, like make some kind of accusation, let's say that the election is a fraud, if you're a conservative, you may shoot from the hip and, and totally agree with Donald Trump and then post-rationalize that and and seek out reasons to justify it. So you might say, well, what about the millions of vote, dead voters? What about what about the votes being at four in the morning? Whereas if you're anti-Trump, you, you will immediately jump to the conclusion that he's talking nonsense and post-rationalize it by saying, you know, finding your own argument. And and that's when you start to realize this is how people argue and debate. When you can look at any single uh, political argument, whether it's Twitter, TV, and you can see the, this exactly playing out. And this is why there's very little common ground. There's, there's actually very few people who are playing the centrist role trying to navigate this and help people navigate these points. And that's why everyone's arguing across purposes. And, and, and we're in this kind of really kind of desperate situation now where no one can really agree on anything. I think as it gets to a really desperate stage, I mean, it's almost like the siege on the Capitol building was actually a chance to get to a point where actually, okay, this has gone too far. We can't actually post-rationalize this. There's no logical way we can rationalize this. And, and perhaps that's how these things end up playing out because of the way people debate. 
There is another guy, I can't remember his name, I, will, I, I can dig out at some point, he's done some further research into this. There's also, a, a, you can look into whether this is nurture or, or nature, and there's a lot to argue that this is uh, nurture, but there are actually biological differences between uh, conservatives and liberals as well, which is why you may get somebody who grows up in a conservative household and ends up being quite liberal and, and vice versa, because there are just structurally biological differences as well. I think that was really good context. Do either one of you guys want to jump into kind of these six different foundations? Yeah, yeah. Happy to list them real quick. So there's six foundations and they are care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, sanctity versus degradation, and liberty versus oppression. And I think most of us, you know, if you, if you think about the basics of these, probably most of us can think about sort of a very clear and salient example of, oh yeah, I'm likely to have sort of a visceral reaction. You know, care, harm, you know, we think, or these guys think comes from the visceral reaction when a defenseless creature, especially a child or anybody who's not in a position of power is threatened with harm. You know, fairness and cheating, like that's one of the classic areas of research in psychology, right? Is like from a very young age, humans had this notion of fairness, you know, whether it's, you know, not cutting the line or getting an equal share or a share that's earned, you know, chicken, uh, what's the the parable about the chicken and the grasshopper? I forget, whatever, the animal, the animal that basically, you know, saves up and hoards for the rent winter has a high time for or a low time preference instead of high time preference, you know, versus the ones that try to mooch later, all that stuff. So then loyalty betrayal, I mean, that gets to very base instincts of, you know, basically lo loyalty to the in-group versus basically everyone else. This gets to the tribalism nature, which is obviously huge in Bitcoin. Authority versus subversion comes down to, you know, humans, unfortunately, as we talk about frequently are a lot of them are sheep. They like to follow. Some of us think for ourselves, but it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of effort. And so there's a, you know, there's basically a base layer or base inclination. It seems to, uh, to res respect authority. Sanctity degradation, it seems to be really deeply rooted in the article or in the book too. There's a reference to the omnivores dilemma, which we didn't talk about in, in the article, but the hypothesis around the omnivores dilemma is a lot of animals just eat like one kind of food, right? which is great because you can specialize your digestive tract and your behaviors to get that one kind of food. However, if you lose access to that one kind of food, then you're toast, right? Humans are omnivores. We eat a bunch of different stuff, but the risk there is that if you graze too widely, you're bound to eat something poisonous eventually. And so it's believed that there's a base layer or base thought process in the brain that focuses on things that are basically clean rather than than fundamentally dirty and that gets to religion and all kinds of stuff and then the last one is liberty versus oppression this is really you know bitcoin's key cornerstone foundation we think but that's kind of the high level overview without getting too far into the weeds on on any of these one of the really interesting things christian with this that i've noticed and, and by the way i end up being a hypocrite here and i've got an anecdote to tell you about shortly but is we tend to see a lot of these kind of Similar articles coming out from the mainstream media. There's been two or three recently, and and once somebody publishes it, we all pile on and correct the the errors in their articles. But one of the things I noticed, I actually, actually had to take a step back today because um I was uh, having a debate with Hugo, Hugo Rifkin, I think it is from the Guardian the other day, wrote his article, and I hadn't really thought it through through the lens of the work that Andy had done, uh, or through the reading Height's book. But what what 
actually realized the day was because my friend got in touch with him, who's a journalist, Tom, who works on Defiance, who did the Ghislaine series. And he said he's really interested in making an episode for Defiance about Bitcoin. Um, he's not a Bitcoiner, Tom. And he said, I think Bitcoin's got an image problem. And what it made me realize, I was thinking about this article that Hugo had written. And, and while I was piling in and, and saying, you've got it wrong, you're an idiot, mainstream press is bullshit. What I realized is actually what, what I'm not doing is actually addressing his moral foundations and where the article maybe have come from. Like outside of the fact like it was like weak journalism and, and, and poor research. But what you actually realize is a lot of these articles, you know, you know we tend to, re- we, we know the majority of mainstream media is liberal there is conservative media and there are centrists but generally speaking there's a lot of liberal and progressive people in media if you tend to look at the 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 talking points that they're bringing up it's actually quite natural for them to talk about the environmental impact or wealth inequality with bitcoin or you know or or funding for terrorism because their moral foundation of care harm leads them to considering these points and actually being drawn to it so so yeah, so the Tom, Tom got in touch with me today about that and said he wants to do an article about Bitcoin's image problem because he, as an outsider who works alongside me, but not really in Bitcoin, he says, all I see is a lot of very angry people shouting at people all day on Twitter to understand Bitcoin. And then if they don't understand it, you all go out to uh, humiliate them. And it made me realize, I said, you know what? That's a really good point because it might be good for clout to sit there and tear apart Hugo's points. But wouldn't it have been actually better to actually reach out to him, have a call, explain to him, based on his moral foundations, why I understand where he's coming from, what I think he's got wrong, and actually re- like kind of, kind of reconfigure his thinking with regards to Bitcoin. That's what I should have done, especially after being uh, noted as co-authoring with Andy. And so that, 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 that really kind of like knocked me back to there. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I probably handled that in the wrong way. I really like that point. And... I feel like Twitter is is obviously not a good place for nuance, not really a good place for a detailed debate. Podcasting and other mediums typically work better, but it always helps no matter what medium to come to try to get on the level of whoever you're arguing with. You know, sometimes with me, it's like a, an ETH head. Sometimes it's, you know, some gold bug. Sometimes it's whatever. But in order to best communicate what you want to communicate, it makes sense to kind of get on their level. You mentioned that, you know, a lot of folks that are more liberal leaning care more about care harm specifically. Do you want to give a little bit more context on how to some a few more groups kind of like fit into this framework? CK, are you talking about groups of people that fit into one of the particular six foundations or What's the question? Sure. I mean, uh, Peter said that, you know, folks who may be a little bit more liberal leaning, typically, you know, care harm is very important for them. I guess, why don't you kind of, you know, categorize a few other recognizable groups based on this? Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, it's actually written in the in the book, In the Righteous Mind, you know, the sort of the, the dichotomy between the liberal perspective, generally, I'm talking about liberal, of course, in, in the modern incarnation, you know, sort of left left side, left-leaning, democratic, you know, what have you, rather than sort of classical liberal. And the notion is that actually conservatives, let's say in general, however you want to define that, basically they they lean on almost the full set of these of these basic foundations. I mean, they say see care harm, you know, from a different perspective. They probably see a more traditional, you know, defending of the family, right? They're the harmless creatures are, are children, you know, who are being, let's say, confused by uh, more liberal views of society in general, you know, gender, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, fairness and cheating, they're very big. Uh, I'm generalizing it here again on, on fairness and fairness is not here equality of outcome, right? It's more about equality of opportunity and just desserts going to those who work hard and scrimp and save, you know, where, where the liberal, they, they would view the liberal perspective as, you know, no, let's just, you know, redistribute regardless of people's, you know, work ethic. Loyalty versus betrayal. I mean, you can see clear. I don't even have to go into the you know the loyalty elements on the on the conservative side, and and likewise with authority, sanctity too. I mean, all, all the religious elements you know play into the into the sanctity uh, foundation, and then liberty oppression. You know, arguably depends on the case, but you know to the extent that the libertarian ethos lives more on the quote conservative side, there's a clear you know liberty angle. What Height pointed out. And it, and I think it's one of the reasons he wrote the book back in 2012 was he saw the 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 liberal side and really the Democratic Party in the U.S. as sort of failing to capitalize on all six of these foundations and really only you know focusing on a few you know more care harm and more you know fairness and and if you want to win politically. You're probably better off drawing on as many of these as many of these arguments as many many of these cognitive bases or foundations as you possibly can. So that's kind of you know the classic, or it's his analysis of the of the two party system here in the U.S. I think it's kind of mostly right. I have this suspicion actually that the Democratic Party would have been more successful in the last decade or two. You know, had it had it taken a more fulsome view of all these foundations, we don't know the counterfactual, but but yeah, that that's an obvious framing in the political element. And we haven't really talked about Bitcoin yet, but we can get into that. Well, I can segue to, to Bitcoin quite in, interestingly here because let's say, I mean, this, this, let's talk about the lens of the U.S. and the U.S. election. Let's say, despite whatever the numbers show us, let's say it's close to a, an even split across the country of conservative voters and liberal voters. I know uh, I know there were more liberal voters, uh, what, 7 million more, but I mean, I think that's close enough to say it's pretty even. I think Bitcoin is an easy sell for conservative people, and I think it's only natural that we have a lot of very kind of conservative-leaning people in Bitcoin. I myself consider myself a bit of a centrist, but, but also at the same time, I, I kind of draw some of my kind of beliefs from both sides. I have conservative values and have liberal values, and which can be a confusing place to be sometimes. But what that I've noticed is that whenever I express conservative values, I get a lot of likes, a lot of you know, support, and people are very keen on that, and you know, I'm part of the team. And But when I exp- express something that's a bit more liberal, I get called a cuck, and I get called a statist, and uh, and all the insults come in. And that's a, there's definitely, a, a, um, I would say, there's... I've noticed that there's much less support for any kind of liberal values I express. But that's a really interesting thing because if you look at Bitcoin, naturally it's more conservative. It's kind of like, leave me the fuck alone. This is my money. I want to do, I want, I want to be self-sovereign. I want, I want less regulation. But if we want Bitcoin to be a success, we still have to sell some of the concepts behind this to, we don't just have to sell it to conservative people. We have to also sell it to liberals as well. And you will have liberals who are against it. You will have liberals in government. We, you've got a liberal government right now in the US. You've got, I mean, there was one guy on Twitter who got savage the other day, but said, look, it should be banned. It's you know, for X, Y, Z reason. And I think 
what height has done and, and, and reading the book and then Andy actually reinforcing this around the, the topic of Bitcoin has actually made me realize that, you know, this, this hostile approach isn't always going to work. And actually it might be uh, counter beneficial to Bitcoin for us to be so hostile to people at times and actually might, might suit us to have much better framework for defending the key points around Bitcoin rather than just saying, oh, you're an idiot or you don't get it or you're a Keynesian or you're a status or you're a cuck actually just try and try and meet them where they stand, where their moral foundations are and, and try and adapt the thinking of Bitcoin to that. Can I just, I agree with hundred percent with Peter, with what you said. And can I just add to that? We, I think we had this in the first couple paragraphs of the article, which is we're not saying that Bitcoin isn't going to win. In fact, I think we both think that Bitcoin already has won, or at least it's sort of highly probable that Bitcoin has already won. And, you know, define that how you will. But let's say highly probable that it will reach its potential. But we see, you know, doing this the easy way or the hard way. And we would rather take the easy path. We would rather take the path where we win hearts and minds. You know, we have enough buy-in by enough people in whatever political jurisdiction, you know, we happen to live in, whether that's the US, UK or somewhere else, such that it gets adopted peacefully rather than some violent you know, response, you know, that that's much less fun for those of us in Bitcoin who are not anonymous or pseudonymous. And, you know, that was our choice to go public with this stuff. For me personally, it was a hard choice. I honestly considered publishing my book and and hashing my name as the as the author and publishing the hash rather than my actual name. So that if I chose to reveal myself later, I could, but 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 that I didn't, you know, had have to necessarily at the outset. I decided not to do that in part because I wanted to do this sort of the regular peaceful way. But that's, you know, that's how I think we're we're framing it. We're not saying that oh, we need to sell this well for Bitcoin to succeed. I don't I don't know that we do have to sell it well for Bitcoin to succeed. It probably will succeed regardless. We're just proposing that we could do this the easy way or the hard way, you know, the peaceful way or the or the less peaceful way. I definitely think that there's something to be said there, right? Because, you know, Bitcoin at its core is a win-win for everyone. You know, adopting, unless you are actually directly benefiting from seniorage and and the Cantillon effect, essentially benefiting from money printing, it, it actually benefits pretty much everyone for adopting it. It's, it's, it's one of the most, like, well-aligned incentive systems out there. But... In order to move from, you know, the fiat perspective, the fiat oriented perspective into a Bitcoin oriented perspective, there is a long way that most people need to go. Most people are really cognitively far away from that. So there are a lot of opportunities for Bitcoiners to try to bridge that gap. And unfortunately, it seems as though a lot of people that, you know, are on Twitter, on social media, evangelizing Bitcoin, they typically kind of stick in their Bitcoin-oriented perspective, their Bitcoin-oriented landscape, which I think is a correct landscape. It's a correct orientation, but it doesn't communicate well, if that makes sense. It does, you know, they're not being very empathetic to where others are. Yeah. And, and part of it is, as you say, being empathetic, knowing your audience you know, there's different different ways to pitch this thing. It's one thing to be toxic to some shit coiner, you know, on on Twitter who's trying to dupe noobs, you know, into piling money into their latest scam coin. That's a different thing than trying to have a you know reasonable conversation with somebody who may be genuinely interested in learning about Bitcoin and you know other alternatives as well. 
it's hard to do that on Twitter. It's hard to know who your who your audience really is and who you're talking to. But yeah, I know I could do a better job for sure of tailoring the message. And as you say, CK, having some empathy and uh, trying to connect with people on a on a on a basic level as a beginning point in order to try to try to bring them into the fold. Well, this is the problem with Twitter. Twitter drives so much of the conversation right now, but it's a it's a very toxic environment. It rewards. It rewards some more like negative behaviors. Like this conversation now is a is like it's a good conversation between three people who are aligned in their thinking, who want to talk about Bitcoin. And we could even bring in a Bitcoin detractor. I mean, I did this show with Francis Coppola and Nick Carter. I've I don't think I've had a show receive so many emails. Well, actually, I've had two shows recently that received more emails than any recently. Francis Copper and Nick Carter one, I probably 40, 50 emails with people saying, I really enjoyed that. It was really good to hear both sides. Can we do a lot more of that? And then I had the Gary V one, which didn't go too well because he kept interrupting. But what it shows that is that if you get people together in an environment like this and you sit down and talk and hash things out and rationalize things and listen to each other's points of view, we could bring in a detractor. We could bring in Hugh Rifkin into this we'd probably ask him what his thinking is and would sit back and we would listen and and then we'd try and present an argument back to it, which is, I think, why podcasts are doing so well. It's why Joe Rogan's done so well, because we've got to sit down and listen to some really interesting conversations. You take this onto Twitter and it's just, it rewards negative behavior. You are rewarded from speaking to your echo chamber. You're rewarded for punishing people. And, and I think you could probably, Andy, if we were ever to do a part two article, we could probably layer on the 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 kind of communications channels and how they could and should be used and 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 the negative consequences of certain ones because certainly Twitter has just made everything a bit too toxic. Yeah, I agree. Im- implementation, you know, Article One is is framework ideation and framework, and then Article Two maybe is is implementation. And I agree. I I would love to see you know more. There's, it's okay to do some of both. You know, it's okay to do like your defiance series on Mnuchin. It's okay to, and it's important to expose, you know, just the shenanigans that some of these powerful people are involved with, because it is important to understanding what their potential agenda is. But yeah, I, I think balancing that with, with bringing some, let's say, skeptics, interested skeptics into the fold and as we know, you know, from, from studies of religion, what's more powerful than, you know, converting, than converting someone over time and holding them up as an example to others regarding, you know, hey, maybe there is something here. Even those who were either skeptical or vocal about being wrong who come around, I mean, that's, that's got to be a powerful example for getting other people to pay attention also. Well, look at Sailor. I mean, when he first came out and announced that he was uh, interested in Bitcoin, he's going to put all of his treasure in there. Someone did a search back of his old tweets and found one where he's negative about Bitcoin. There, There is a strong argument to say that he is a large contributing factor to this bull run. He opened up the idea of treasuries going into Bitcoin. You know, at some point, something changed his mind, whether it's he did himself, a specific conversation. We've also had Ray Dalio as a detractor. Now, Ray Dalio has come on Twitter and he opened up his, and said, okay, I'm I'm willing to listen to about this. Now, if Ray Dalio comes on board as a as a Bitcoin buyer, a significant investor, think how many people that's going to convert. You know, the the guy from The Guardian the other day, if I convert, you know, had the proper conversation with him rather than try to humiliate him, what if he what if he goes back to his editor and says, you know what, I think we've got this Bitcoin thing wrong. I think we need to write something else. So 
I think we win anyway, like you say, but I think we make it easier for ourselves by actually approaching the detractors in a different way. That that kind of coming from that position of empathy first. So let's talk about better ways to approach it. In the article, specifically, you guys talk about the environmental perspective and a lot of Bitcoiners have anticipated that the unfounded environmental concerns, the kind of misconstrued environmental concerns as being, you know, very powerful anti-Bitcoin propaganda. Do you kind of want to talk about that specific topic, how in the article you guys kind of break it down from maybe a more empathetic perspective? And, you know, from there, maybe we can even talk about other examples. Yeah, I'm so I'm happy to take that one. And ironically, I'm not sure we framed it all that empathetically, but I can imagine, you know, how I would frame it more empathetically. And the hypothesis here, which it took me a while to get around to, and I think smarter people than me figured figured this out, but I've become pretty convinced of it, is people are, are looking at the environmental angle completely wrong. And I'm not talking about, oh, you know, the mix of current energy consumption is mostly clean, which we think it is. I'm talking about the way to get to effective, widespread, clean energy is you have to bring the cost down and down and near zero. And the way that happens is somehow you get higher production, you know, in the case of battery powered cars, you sell more cars, which means more revenue to the manufacturer, which means more research and development which reduces the cost, which causes more sales, which funds more R&D, and you get this virtuous cycle. And I think the frame, the framing though for carrots versus sticks, which is most, I would say democratic, I don't want to say democratic, but let's say liberal side policy is, you know, let's tax the, tax the heck out of carbon or let's impose limits. And that just doesn't compute if you're in a developing country where you're living on a few dollars a day and you're the, you know, the governor of some uh, province in India, let's say, and you're like, I got to lift these people out of, out of poverty. If the coal plant is cheaper right now, I'm installing the coal plant. <laughs> if the solar array is cheaper, okay, great. I'll install the solar array. But you know, that's just the hard decision. I think the way we could frame the empathy better is, you know, dear, let's say liberal side, you know, person politically, dear liberal, you know, try and put your shoes in, or your feet in the shoes of a person who is extremely poor lives on a few dollars a day in India or Pakistan or some other part of the of the world, and they don't have the luxury of thinking about whether the Earth's, you know, going to go up a few degrees in temperature or even whether that's going to make their monsoon and storm season worse. They literally have to put food on the table right now. So, and by the way, the industrialized world—America, UK, Europe—we already got to belch you know, hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 in order to industrialize and get ourselves to this high level of wealth. So, you know, try to think about the the poor farmer, the rural inhabitant of one of these developing countries. They really need to install what's cheapest now. How do we practically get the total cost, the fully installed and operating cost of that clean energy whether it's solar, whether it's wind, you know, whether it's hydro, as low as possible, doesn't it make sense that the way Bitcoin works, where you unlock all the stranded solar capacity that was otherwise unused, isn't that going to drive more solar installations, which is going to drive more revenue to these companies, which is going to bring the R&D up, which is going to drive down the cost? Doesn't that make sense from the perspective of that you know, poor, poor rural farmer, basically? 
just to kind of frame how you oriented this, right? Someone maybe who's left-leaning might categorize themselves as an environmentalist. You attacked it from the both fairness as well as care harm perspective. Hey, let's think about this other person who has been exposed to unfair situations who needs to take care of themselves right now. And then how do we get to their level? So I, I love that example, Andy. And Sarah, back to you, Pete. Yeah, so the only other thing I was going to add in there as, as well is I think one thing we need to be cognizant of is that I think, I think I'd love to have the research done, a final way of actually researching this, accurate information on what it is the detractors are really, truly pissed off about with Bitcoin. Because I suspect a number of them are a little bit just kind of salty, jealous, feel like they've missed out because they see a unit price of 32,000 of something they knew that was 20,000 four years ago and 1,200. And they just see, see it keep going up. And it's actually quite a scary thing to invest in. You always think you're too late. You always think you're going to lose money. You have to deal with volatility. But I think that perhaps may be like a base point where some people struggle with. And and if we go back to the hype thing is that people tend to make a decision and then post-rationalize. And I think, I think some people may be shooting from the hip of, I've missed out, it's too expensive, too late. And now they're going to post-rationalize why they dislike Bitcoin. They're going to post-rationalize it because of its carbon footprint or because they think it's creating wider wealth inequality or because, you know, for whatever reason it is. But actually, the real reason might just be a little bit more fundamental to them. It might be actually a bit of selfish reason. And I think it would be interesting to have some research into that because if that is true, if, we, if if actually our starting point is is actually it's not any of those specific issues. If our starting point is that people just feel a bit like they've missed out, they feel like they're seeing other people getting rich and they're not. That perhaps maybe even be the starting point for some people. Yeah, and I think that that really brings up you know the fundamental risk in in Bitcoin is understanding. And if you understand it and you've done the research, then you know that you've not missed out. You know it's still early, but if you lack that understanding. I can definitely see how, like you said, everything about it is scary. You know, the price, the volatility, you know, all the unknowns, the just everything about it, the cryptocurrency, the the gray market, all of it. Well, take take it back to Trump, right? Yeah, if you're a if you're a liberal, it's very hard to get a liberal person to talk about the good things that Trump did. But but as a somebody you can try and see both sides, he wasn't clearly all bad, right? He stood up to China, which I think was a really, really important thing to do. I do think he tried to reduce regulations. There are certain, you know, and, and but there's also a lot of things I don't like about him. But to get a liberal person to do that is, is, is really difficult. They shoot, they immediately dislike him for whatever reason, and then they post-rationalize it with a list. And I just think that's the same that happens with Bitcoin. Somebody, somebody makes a decision, and then they post-rationalize it with a link. They go out and research the things that they dislike. And it was I, I keep referring to this Hugo Rifkin Guy, but I think he, I believe he did the same because I did a, like a 12 or 13 tweet tweet storm where I responded to some of his points. And, and he, he just brought up some like, kind of like old cliche arguments, the same ones that have been spun before. And I said to him, I said, you've brought up old arguments. He said, well, that's what the audience wants. And I said, yeah, but you didn't offer a fair, balanced explanation of them. You just you just put the carrot in front of them and let them eat away. You didn't actually explain to them what the issue with these arguments are. You didn't explain both counter, like the counterpoints. And and that's what I think might be happening. I think they're shooting from the hip and then post-rationalizing, especially with journalists. Especially the journalists, you know, because we've also got the journalists within the Bitcoin industry. They've been around for years. 
I think Nathaniel Popper is a good example. Um, his book, Digital, was it Digital Gold? Did he write? I can't remember yep. the name now. Yep. It's the first right. thing I, it's the first book I read. I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic book. And I feel like he's become increasingly more hostile towards Bitcoin through each cycle. He's written a lot of stuff about Coinbase recently, which I think was unfair. And I've just found that his approach to be a bit more hostile. And I'm wondering if he has that hostility because he's been around it. He's watched all these people get rich and he perhaps maybe has missed out. And I, I think he would deny it, but there is a certain pattern between ju- the journalists in the industry as well. Well, so Peter, I have a question for you. You know, how can we use the 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 framework here, the kind of like these six these six pillars to address that? You know, to salty salty no coiners, right? That's really at the root of a lot of you know what you're pointing out here. How can you get on their level? That's a really good question, and I, I don't think I'd have the answer right away. Um, I'm, I'm not. You know, with something like this, I'd probably rather than like rather than try and think on the spot, I'd probably just want to go away and, and mind map it out actually. And just I'd rather actually talk to somebody, go and talk to somebody who has this kind of approach. I talked about like Tom, the guy in Defiance. He's gonna he's going to do this, right? So he what he wants to do is do three interviews. And one of them is with me about Bitcoin, and then he wants to go and talk about Hugo. And he kind of wants to present how Bitcoin is perceived externally from people who aren't in Bitcoin. And and I think that's a really useful piece of work. I said to him, I've got the text here, right? It's kind of funny. I said to him, you will likely get shit for it, but that would also prove your point. And he said, yeah, you're right. The pylon would be literally making my point. But he wants to go and do that exercise. And I actually think if we can take a step back and ourselves not shoot from the hip and just become all judgmental, if we can actually look at that, it, that might be a helpful tool for us to understand other people so sorry i can't really answer i wouldn't want to answer your question because i i would just be coming up with something on the spot it's the kind of thing that deserves the time to be sat down and researched and he might have an answer there yeah i was thinking i was thinking about it while you were um we we're speaking for a moment there and i think it's a hard one i mean it makes me think about the notion of you know getting back to the what what these guys believe is the root of these six foundations which is basically the cohesion of the group right as a species, you got to have teamwork, you know, to survive basically in the jungle, to survive on the plains against the predators, you know, you, you need teamwork. And I think that many would argue that regardless of what foundation you're drawing on, even if you're wrong, if you can motivate the group and move the group in one direction and stay cohesive, usually that's a winning strategy. Now, if you're wrong enough, Okay, it can be ruinous. That's true, right? If you if you, if you literally march the march the tribe off the cliff, you know, then nothing's going to save you. But if there's any doubt about what the right course of action is, then actually just, you know, basically banding together for the benefit of the group may be the right way to go evolutionarily. And so the question of like, well, you know, if my group, however I define that, and if my group is part of my identity is against this thing, Bitcoin in this case, then I'm probably safer just sticking with the party line, sticking with the group. You know, I'm trying to remember if Popper did, did Popper work for the New York Times. I'm trying to remember, or was he Wall Street yep. Journal? Is he independent? Anyone he's know? been on the New York Times a lot. I don't know if he's right. So I think a little bit of I think a little bit of New York Times is a liberal camp, and as as you pointed out earlier, Peter, Bitcoin seems to fit more naturally into the conservative camp. So if you're working for the liberal side, you know, you're probably thinking you might be thinking more about your job and 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 fitting in in that regard. So the other thing I was going to say is there's another there's another theory in psychology, which is that thinking takes too much energy. In other words, 
you know, our brains burn whatever 20 to 25% of the energy that we expend. And so it's actually a lot more work to think from first principles every time you go to do something, every time you, you know, decide whether you need to use a fork or a spoon or a knife, or you decide whether to turn left or turn right. You don't want to have to, to, to basically run the cognitive machinery every time. So maybe once you've made a conclusion about, oh, this thing is wrong, it's a lot easier to stick with that you know, thought framework rather than constantly reimagining and reassessing and going to first principles and saying, oh, how am I wrong? How am I wrong? Oh, maybe I was wrong. And basically doing the work over and over and over. I think that may be another trap that guys, you know, the, that folks get, get stuck in in that regard. Once they've taken a position on Bitcoin, once the elephant has moved in one direction, it's a lot more work to run the thought process to, to course correct. And just to add, kind of add on that, I mean, this is true for everything, not just Bitcoin. It just so happens that Bitcoin is an extremely volatile asset on top of that. And its price can, you know, rub itself in your face if if you kind of have that negative perspective. But, you know, at the same time, I, I don't think Bitcoiners are 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 free of of kind of like this cognitive shortcuts. You know, everyone kind of does this. I actually have a tattoo on my body it says the key of life is to know nothing. It's something I believe in, you know, very strongly. But when I tell people that, you know, that they it's kind of like a litmus test, right? It's either they respond, oh, so ignorance is bliss, or, or oh, being open-minded is is important. And, you know, that litmus test tells me a lot about, you know, where they are, you know, from a, a foundation, where their their perspective is. But yeah, I mean, it's just hard to understand that, you know, what you know is very limited and you're missing a lot of facts and details and it can be proven wrong. And you ultimately have to, constantly use first principles to to assess yourself like that is it's just something that's hard for anyone to do yeah i mean you look you know my approach christian it winds people up but my approach is always just to ask the questions if i don't know something just ask it don't ever be afraid i think this is a, this is the thing we have in bitcoin right we have a lot of people who are, who are very technical or very intelligent or you know very very experienced with economics and i think specifically on the technical side they don't understand that other people don't see the world in the same way as them. So I like, I always think you you have to try and open these up to other people. You have to try and think about how other people do things, how they approach life. And we get to sit and read and study and learn about Bitcoin all day, every day, read articles on Twitter, listen to podcasts, interview people. Some people get into Bitcoin, they're going to work, they're coming home, they're putting their kids to bed. They're spending some time with their wife and they might have half an hour or an hour or they might have an hour and commute into work. And that's the, the amount of time they have. They don't have time to perhaps to figure out how to turn a raspberry uh, pie into a node. They don't have time to figure out what an XPUB is. They just want to buy a bit of Bitcoin and hopefully make some money and, and do the best they can, right? And I and some people just are, are differently minded. And I th- I think we could all benefit from understanding that. Can I, can I propose something too, which... I don't know if it's right or not, but I'm just spitballing here, which is we talked about the easy path versus the hard path. And there's maybe an irony here, which is when you think about group dynamics, you think about survival and, you know, no, no doubt about it. This is about survival, right? When the real FUD comes, when the real attacks come, you know, Bitcoiners are going to need, we're going to need each other. And I can make a case for, let's try to travel the easy path. Let's, as Peter is suggesting, you know, be more empathetic Remember that different people are coming from different levels of knowledge and different life experiences. And let's try to build the case 
bring people into the fold peacefully. There is a downside to that, of course, which is if we are doomed to the hard path of struggle, then actually there's an argument that we ought to galvanize our group of Bitcoiners as strongly as possible. And there's, as we know from, you know, fraternity hazing traditions to military training to, you know, various aspects of group dynamics, we know that one great way to coalesce a group, you know, you know, hatred of the out group, you know, whether you're a political leader or a, or a country, you know, a nationalist, a demagogue, one way to, to coalesce the group and make it stronger is to fight the outside opponent. So I guess I can make a case for if we're doomed to the hard path, then yeah, let's be hostile. It'll galvanize us, you know, Bitcoiners as a, as a group. It will gird us for battle and, and we'll be stronger, you know, more, more tight-knit, more cohesive as a group. However, I still, you know, I'm hopeful to take the easier peaceful path and I'm personally willing to sacrifice a little bit of, you know, of the toxicity in order to increase our probability of traveling the, the peaceful path. But that's just a thought I had that I could imagine a more toxic, a more toxic Bitcoin or taking the perspective of, you know, screw it, it's going to be the hard path anyway. So let's just gird for battle. Well, I think some of them have had to take the hard path for so many years now. They're just kind of used to it and they become toughened. I remember like four years ago when I was first like dipping my toes in and asking questions. And certainly I felt people are really hostile. I was, I was thinking, why are they so hostile? Just I'm just asking questions. And now I found myself the other side just so fed up of answering the same questions or dealing with the same crap. I mean, if it's a shit coin, fair enough, they can they can do one. But I found myself becoming a little less patient with this. But it, I think this conversation and the article is a chance to just, and even my conversation with Tom earlier, it's just a chance to you know, check yourself and go, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I too was there at that one point asking questions. I too was there not understanding things and I needed help. And now I'm expecting people to understand all this stuff and I'm showing a little patience. And I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's just a good chance to check yourself with that. So we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, but I think there's a great place to kind of wrap it up with this kind of observation I've made is that Bitcoin is going to get it all. Like I know that, you know, we're kind of speaking to the in group and we're saying, hey, like you can communicate differently and there's some merit to it. But ultimately, Bitcoin is permissionless open source tech and it's built for the hard path. But it, it it's always like bringing on new recruits who have more patience, who have more empathy, who are more aligned with the majority. And that's kind of how Bitcoin evolves. So I am hopeful. You know, we at one point, you know, Peter, we connected back in 2018 for the first time. Both of us were relatively new to this industry. Both of us were bushy eyed and, and, you know, ready to be patient, interview Roger, interview CSW, all this kind of stuff that yep. you did to kind of kick your career off in the space. And, you know, maybe we're getting a little jaded where we've deepened the end group, but there are new people that are constantly coming in. So I am hopeful for Bitcoin for that and why, you know, maybe the three of us do think that Bitcoin has already won. It's just, how how difficult is it going to be on Bitcoiners to to realize you know that future it is really what we're talking about here. To wrap this one up, I want to give you each a, um, a moment to do a last word. Let's start with Andy, and then and then go to Peter. And please plug yourselves as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. Usual shills, you know, Edstrom Andrew on Twitter. Why buy Bitcoin? AndyEdstrom.com for more pod stuff. You know, and Swan Bitcoin forward slash Andy. And I guess my 
I guess I'd probably return to what I said, which is I have been more guilty than most of, you know, trying to beat people up with the logic. I think we'll win more hearts and minds and we'll get more adoption sooner, you know, if we if we check ourselves a little and think about, hey, how can I step into the shoes a little bit of this person, you know, who's trying to learn. And look, if they're just, you know, trolling, you know, for the sake of trolling, you know, fine. Revert to Goldstein's, you know, protocol of, <laughs> of troll right back at him. But if they're, you know, if you have a sense that maybe they don't fully understand it and that they're trying to learn, you know, maybe we can be a little patient and empathize. Uh, yeah, my usual stuff at Peter McCormack on Twitter. The podcast is what Bitcoin did. Firstly, just thank you, Christian. I don't normally like being on the other side. I'm much, I'm much more comfortable asking questions, but being alongside Andy makes it a lot easier. And Andy, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to work with you. Yeah, myself, just I know I have two personalities. I have the podcast personality and Twitter, and they're completely different. I'm definitely right now rethinking that I just have to check myself a little bit on Twitter because there's an opportunity to reach out to people, help them understand stuff. Uh, maybe you know, telling everyone to have fun staying poor isn't the right way to do things. I mean, you can look at it both ways. You can say no, but also that me- the memes also become marketing. So you can, you can kind of look at it both ways. But at the same time, you know, we've got a lot of people considering Bitcoin right now. The, the friends we told at 4K never cared, and they didn't care at 10K, and they didn't care at 15K. Here we are at 30K, and they're like, they're interested. And having a good set of arguments prepared for the different objections they might have or the different concerns they have might be helpful. So yeah, it's, it's been a really useful exercise, and I'm very grateful to Andy for including me in it. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure's been all mine. I would like to collaborate, you know, more with more people in the future. A lot more people can bring, you know, can bring a lot to the table. Both you guys, it's been a pleasure to work with you. And it's been a pleasure seeing the great content, you know, coming from both you guys, Peter and CK and Bitcoin Magazine. So I know we'll all keep it up into this, what we think is a massive bull run. And yeah, let's Bitcoiners stick together. Absolutely. We're, we're all here for the Bitcoiners. And I, I really do think that if you have not read this article, you need to really eloquently said. And, you know, ultimately, there's times where it's appropriate to troll. But there's a lot of times where, you know, you should take a, a moment to be empathetic. And we all fall into that trap. So Bitcoiners, again, check out the article. Check me out at CK underscore Snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. Peace. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.